Welcome to Divine Truth Podcast with Dr. Stephen M. Huffman. Michael is a senior pastor with Emmanuel Baptist Church in beautiful Central Virginia. The purpose of this podcast is to teach and edify God's people through a verse-by-verse exposition of God's Word. To learn more about Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit www.ebcmineral.com. And now, here is Pastor Michael Huffman. Good. Jude, the first chapter, because that's the only chapter in the book of Jude. Um, Jude, and I told Dad before we began, and I'll tell you, I was um, greatly surprised at just how little I got accomplished last time, but that's a great thing about being an expository preacher and preaching through a book. You can just chop it off wherever you want to chop it off, and you pick it up next time. So that I like that. I like that. So we didn't even get through the first verse last time we were here, and, and I don't know if we'll finish tonight, but we'll see how far we can get, and then we'll pick it up next time. Okay, so let's read our text, um, Jude 1. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 3. Um, so, okay, Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. This is God's inerrant, inspired, and all-sufficient word. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord, we praise you uh, for this day. We praise you for your grace. We praise you um, for the Lamb of glory who uh, died for our sins to take them away that we might be made right with God. We praise you, Lord, for that. And we just praise you for this evening that you've given us to come into your house and learn from your word. And I just pray, Lord, that as I uh, proclaim your truth, that I would do so unashamedly, yet humbly and with love in clarity, and may you please bless the hearer. For it's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Okay, so the book of Jude is, uh, we started um, our study in the book of Jude by uh, describing the book of Jude as a, a book on the topic of apostasy or false teaching. That is the primary theme of our book. And we, if you remember from last time, I don't know if you were able to take notes, but if you remembered from last time, we told you that the greatest threat to the church does not come from without the church. You would think possibly that that would, might be the case, that persecution from without the church and uh, the threats from without the church, that is what um, uh, threatens the church the most. And we made it clear that that was not the case, that what threatens the church the most comes from within the church, namely in the form of false teachers. Because we told you that the only thing that outward persecution does to the true church is purify it and strengthen it. It purifies it. The harm that comes from within the uh, church uh, comes in the form of false teaching, and the reason why it is so deadly is because it does so in a hidden way, in a clever way, and in a way that's hidden disguised. We, we told you how the, sat- how the Bible calls Satan an angel of light, and his followers, his false teachers that are of the devil, are also of that category. They come, and they hide themselves as orthodox, 
as people that you might would agree with on certain things, and then they slowly slip in their falsehood. That's what makes them so dangerous because it cripples the church. And we looked at the fact that uh, false teachers, again, is, is the theme of this book, and that Jude um, attempts in this book to expose these false teachers and then to expel these false teachers. We told you, though, that before we could examine the truths of the book, that we wanted to look at the author himself. We wanted to know more about who wrote the book of Jude. We learned in that study that Jude was the half-brother of Christ, just to uh, go off some of the things that we learned, not to spend too much time in this. He was the half-brother of Christ. We learned that he, along with his other brothers, denied Christ as Messiah until after the resurrection. But yet after the resurrection, he was graciously converted to Christ. And then after that, he served Christ as an itinerant uh, evangelist. One thing that if you look in verse 1 that really popped out to us, popped out to me, um, is that he describes himself, Jude does, as a servant or a slave, the word there's doulos, a slave to Christ. We learned that this is synonymous with what we call um, the lordship of Christ. That if you are in Christ, you're, uh, you're automatically a slave to Christ. That there's no such thing as having Christ as your Savior and not having Him as your Lord. If He is your Savior, then His commands will dictate your life. That's what's called the Lordship of Christ. And in calling Himself that as a believer, we said that that includes all of us as believers. We then looked that he went from describing himself to describing the church and then thusly every believer the same. And he called us, if you look in verse 1, he called us the beloved, or in, in, your, in your verse you'll see sanctified by God, but the, the Greek word there is agape, which you could translate beloved of God beloved of God. And we said that that means that Christians are objects of God's divine love. This love is undeserved, it's unmerited, it is um, unearned, and yet it is lavished upon us as Christians. This kind of love, we said, is foreign to natural man. It's outside of us. We don't understand it, we don't comprehend it, but yet this is the love in which Christ has to us, his children. And then we looked at probably one of the most, if not the most, comforting doctrines in Scripture. Uh, Jude further describes us as preserved in Jesus Christ. That's near the end of verse 1. Preserved in Jesus Christ. We said that this meant that believers in Christ are kept by God. Believers in Christ are kept by God. Our salvation, listen to me clearly, is maintained, is guarded, and obtained all by God's wise, sovereign power. We said that natural man can do nothing to reconcile himself to God, but the moment God reconciles us to himself in Christ, there's nothing we can do to somehow undo that reconciliation. We're in Christ forever. It's a done deal. It's a done deal. We are kept. Believers 
cannot lose their salvation. Simply stated, they can't. Why? For our salvation was his decision. And you'll remember I told me so, so, I told you so many people try to bring themselves up into their salvation. Leave yourself out of it. You had nothing to do with it. It was all of him. It was his decision. It is maintained by his power and it will be finished for his glory. It's all of him. It's all of him. And I told you we didn't get very far because that's where we left off. That's, that's, that's as far as we got. We didn't even get through verse 1. My Sunday school will tell you all about that. We'll tell you all about that. You know, every time I say, you know, we're going to finish this, they're like, mm-hmm, sure, we're going to finish this. But, we, you know, we're going to just get as far as we can, okay? Okay. Our salvation is all of him. We're preserved in Christ. That's where we kept off. That's where we left off last time. But then just two words at the end, but two words that are so very powerful. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James to them that are sanctified or beloved by God the Father, preserved in Jesus Christ and called. And called. Of all the, the, the words that we've looked at to describe believers, this is the only one that is not a verb, but rather it's an adjective. All the other ones were things that God actively does. And it is descriptive of us as believers, but these are things that God actively does to us as believers. But rather this and called is an adjective, which means it is descriptive. It's a descriptive word describing us as believers. We are, as Christians, the called out ones. We are the called out ones. So you might, we we need to differentiate between two callings of God. The general calling of God and the effectual calling of God. Because we hear it all the time. Pastor did it this morning. If anyone does not know Christ, please come to Christ. But not every Sunday people come to Christ. But we are called as Christians, the called out ones. Jude is not talking about, in this verse, the general invitation to sinners, which, as I said, so often goes unheeded and actually rejected. He's not talking about that calling. We see examples of this calling, don't we, in Scripture? Uh, But two examples uh, from the prophet Isaiah Isaiah 45:22 says, "Look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none else." This is a a general invitation. Look unto me and just for an interesting fact, that is actually the verse that Charles Spurgeon was uh, converted under. This is the verse that the Lord used to save Charles Spurgeon. "Look unto me and be saved." It's a general invitation. Another general invitation in the prophet Isaiah 55.6, seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. But this begs the question, do people obey this all the time? No, they don't. No, they don't. Because this is not the calling that Jude is speaking of. This is a, a, just a general invitation, a gospel invitation. Come to Christ. But not everyone comes to Christ. In fact, the Lord says most people don't. So what calling is Jude speaking of? Jude is talking about, he is describing what we call in theology the effectual call of God. This is the effectual call of God the Holy Spirit whereby he comes 
awakens the sinner, breathes the breath of life into his dead corpse, takes out the heart of stone, replaces it with a heart of flesh, imparts life to a once dead sinner, changes the will, enables the once dead sinner to then respond to the gospel. It's complete life. It's complete life. This is the calling of God that actually comes and does something. Not just the general call, but the effectual call, the piercing of the heart, the giving of life, the changing of the will. This is the call which Jude is calling, uh, is describing. This call was not based upon anything in us, just like our salvation was not based upon anything in us. Why? Because we were dead. Rather, it was by the good pleasure and wisdom and all-wise counsel of God. Without this call, without this effectual call, without this changing of the will, the changing of the mind, the giving of life, no one ever would come to Christ. No one. Because we hate God, we're dead in sin, so we have no ability to come to Christ. Something must happen. Something must be affected. Namely, the heart of the sinner. Isn't this what Christ says in John 6, 4, uh, 44? No man can come to me except what? The Father which has sent me, draw him. This is the effectual call. The drawing of God the Father to the sinner uh, from the Holy Spirit. That is the only way in which Christ says a man can come to God unless you're affected by this effectual call. Christians are those who have been called out of a lost and dying world and brought into the kingdom of God. We are literally, as I said, the called out ones. What did Christ say in his high priestly prayer, of which we've heard in John 17? I don't pray for those of the world. I pray for those you've given me outside of the world. Why? Whereby the effectual call of God. Those in which you've called out of the world, those are the ones you've effectually called, those are mine, and those are who I pray for. This is the effectual call. Charles Wesley uh, beautifully penned and described the effectual call in a hymn that we all love, And Can It Be? I don't know what verse it is, maybe the second, but Charles Wesley describes the effectual call of God this way. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Here's the effectual call. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeons flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and I followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Should die for me and a call me. Can't you just imagine yourself before Christ? Dead. Not sick. Dead. Lying spiritually in the ground as a corpse, and then this quickening ray of the effectual call of God changes everything. Everything. This effectual call is synonymous with spiritual life because it is by this call that we're given new life in Christ. You are called. A wonderful example of the effectual call is, is seen in Lydia, isn't it, in the book of Acts. 
Acts 16.14, And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, heard us, listen to this, whose heart the Lord opened. The effectual call of God. The opening and the changing of the heart. Other places in Scripture is 2 Timothy 1.9, Who hath saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Ephesians 2.5, Even when we were dead in sins, listen to this, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace you're saved. You're quickened. You're made alive. You're called out. You're a brand plucked from the fire. Romans 1.6 Among whom are you also the called of Jesus Christ? You are called out by God. And I don't know about you, but oh how I praise the Lord that he, by his infinite matchless grace to a pathetic, sinning, dead, puny little eight-year-old kid, said, James, come, come. And any of you who are believers in Christ, that happened to you. We are called out. But now let's transition to the way in which Jude describes us to the benefits thereby of our salvation. Because our salvation comes with lavish benefits, does it not? So let's look at just a few briefly. I'm not going to spend too much time on this verse, but we do have benefits in Christ, and this certainly is not an all-inclusive list. But in Jude 2, he then goes on to say, Mercy unto you, and peace and love be multiplied. And as I said, the salvation that God brings is filled with rich blessings. Mercy and peace was a common Jewish greeting, but Jude adds love so as to constantly remind his readers of the love of God for them. This threefold expression appears actually only here in the New Testament. This is the only place we see this threefold expression. Be multiplied, in the Greek where he says these things be multiplied to you, that means to be increased. Pretty basic, to be increased. So Jude's prayer is that his readers would enjoy all the rich blessings that they have in Christ, no matter how hard their fight against apostasy gets. Remember that the salvation that God brings comes with rich, manifold blessings, thereby being mercy, peace, and love. Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to this. Who have blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. If you're in Christ, you are blessed with all the spiritual blessings in Christ. The first one that Jude tells us is that we as believers enjoy God's mercy. We enjoy God's mercy. I don't know how many times I could say we don't want what's fair because fairness would send us to hell. We want mercy because it is only mercy that gives us heaven. Fairness condemns us all because it would be completely fair because of who we are outside of Christ could condemn us all in one big lot. 
but mercy saves. Mercy saves. And as Christians, we share and enjoy in God's mercy. It's unmerited. That's the very definition of mercy. It's undeserved. Unmerited favor, grace, and mercy. To do all the things that we did outside of Christ and yet for God by his love and grace to save us is entirely and completely and utterly an act of sheer mercy. It's complete mercy. Whenever believers commit sin, not only do we have salvific mercy, but we have living mercy. Because not only are we saved by God's mercy, but we're sustained by God's mercy. Because whenever a believer sins, we have the mercy to run before the mercy seat of Christ and find forgiveness there. Hebrews 4.16, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. Why? That we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. As Christians, we are those who have not received, as I said, what we deserve. We receive what we don't deserve. Mercy. Mercy. Titus 3.5, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he has saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. We are recipients of mercy. Secondly, Jude describes one of the blessings Christians have through Christ and in Christ is God's peace. God's peace. We live in a very frantic, frantic, and very unpeaceful world. And now is not the time for Christians to join that. Now is the time for Christians to put on full display. You all are all frantic. We're doing just fine. Why? Because we have God's peace. God's peace. What a beautiful promise this is. What was that, brother? Were you, are you just agreeing or were you going to say something? Okay. Amen. Amen. No, no. This is the kind of peace. This is the kind of peace that can receive a fatal diagnosis from a doctor and still have joy. This is the kind of peace that can lose loved ones to a shipwreck and still write, It's well with my soul. This is not a peace in which the world gives. There's a peace in my heart that the world cannot take, the hymn says. It doesn't come from the world. It's a peace of God. This is a peace, listen to this, this is it's so beautiful. This is a peace that first and foremost stems from the knowledge that I have peace with God. And if I have peace with God, come what may in my life, I simply have peace. Because that's first and foremost. And if I have peace with him, give me whatever this life may bring. I have peace with God. I have peace on earth. I have peace on earth. Hard thing to live up to. But something that's ours in Christ. Something that's ours in Christ. John 14, 27, the words of Jesus, peace I leave with you. My peace, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. John 16, 33, 
These things I have spoken to you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world, you're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. Philippians 4.7, And the peace of God, as Brother Panther was saying, which passes all understanding, meaning I don't understand why I have this peace, I just have it, shall keep your hearts and minds through Jesus Christ. And then finally, Colossians 3.15, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which you are called in one body, and be thankful. We are recipients of God's peace. And then lastly, Jude uh, Jude Jude describes another blessing that Christians have is God's love. And we've we've already talked about this, so I don't really want to go into that. But again, just as uh, as a way of reminder, it is so very true that as Christians, and if you're a believer, you know this, that God's love is poured out daily, lavishly, undeservedly upon my life. Romans 5.5, 5, And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given to us. What blessings, what lavish blessings Jude describes is poured out on us from God in Christ. It's called out to whom God calls, God loves, and God keeps in Christ. Being a child of God is really the only life worth living because it's the only life that brings this. It is the only life that brings this. And it was these spiritual blessings that were to bolster prod the sides and keep up these Christians in their fight against apostasy, against false teachings. And that is now what we turn to. I've I've titled this sermon, A Faith Worth Fighting For. A Faith Worth Fighting For. Verses three and four. Three and four. We're only gonna get to verse three. Beloved, When I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. We have a faith worth fighting for, and it is to that fight in which Jude calls these Christians. So we've already looked at two points, the fact of our, who we are in Christ and our position in Christ. Our position is that we are lavished with blessings. But now let's look at Jude's intention. Jude's intention, and again, you'll find that In verse 3, let me read that again. When I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. The first word that Jude opens with is the word beloved. He likes that word. He likes to describe Christians 
as that. And this tells us that the audience to whom Jude was writing to was an audience of believers only. This, this, this was intended for Christians. You will remember, as, as we've already looked at, that back in verse 1, Jude describes us as the beloved of God. And he uses this description of us again to describe whom he's writing to. And Jude is also displaying, by calling us the beloved of God, he's also displaying pastoral love and concern for this church with the impending danger of false teachers. He's coming from the place of one who has a genuine love for truth and also a genuine love for God's people. It's an affectionate term that Jude is using to describe people he loves because of the truth he loves, namely the truth of God. And it's with these dual loves, the truth of God and the love of that and the people of God and the love of that that he seeks to warn these Christians. And might I just say that this is the place where every faithful pastor will come from in dealing with his congregation. Love for God, love for truth, love for people. And this is where Jude is coming from. Every pastor should preach the truth of God's word with a love for that truth and also a love for the people to whom he is preaching and a desire for them to know truth. This is the place where every pastor comes from. This is the place where Jude is coming from. And Jude informs us of his original intent in writing. He says that his original intent in writing this book was to write a book about the common salvation. The common salvation. What does that mean? Jude had originally intended to write a book about the shared blessings that believers have in Christ. Jude, uh, being a believer himself, had an experiential knowledge. This was not just head knowledge, this was heart knowledge. Jude knew of himself, for himself, the blessings that come in Christ, and he endeavored at first to write a book to share these blessings to write about these blessings that he knew and that he knew that Christians knew. And he endeavored to write a book about that. He wanted to write a book about all of our salvific benefits. And he kind of killed two birds with one stone because he, he mentioned that in the first half of, in the first verse, in the second verse. Again, I already mentioned this. This is a worthy topic to talk about. This would have been a great book a book about our salvific blessings. Again, in Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. We have lavish blessings that we've already discussed, and this would have been an amazing topic for a book. And as I've said, he already touched on this in an introductory manner in the first half of his book, or the first verse, definitely not the first half. But yet, it was not the theme of the book in which he had originally intended. He originally intended the whole book to be about salvific benefits. Jude said that he gave all diligence to write. And you could say that he made every effort to write to them regarding the common salvation. Spouty in the Greek, and it connotes hastening or speed. 
This could mean that Jude hurried in vain or that he tried hard, but try as he may, he could not complete what he had originally planned to do. You've ever done this. You've ever done this. You know something is more important, but you'd really rather do this. So you try to do this. As you try to do this, in the back of your mind, you're saying, I can't do this. I've got to do this. And that's kind of where the place that Jude is coming from. His original intent and what he hurried hastily to do, what he tried but couldn't do, was to write about the common salvation. But he couldn't do it. Um, Maybe you could say that when he tried to do this, the looming threat of false teachers weighed on his heart, weighed on his mind, and made it impossible for him to do it. He just couldn't do it. Um, But what was the most necessary thing for Jude to write about. It's not as if it was coming, Jude was coming from a place of what he most wanted to write about, but what was most necessary to write about. This would have been a book that was probably lighthearted, cheerful, and happy, happy to read. If you know the book of Jude, it doesn't really match that description. It's a hard book to read. It's a hard book to study because it's not about the shared blessings in Christ. It's about a church under attack from false teachings. Why? Because what's sometimes necessary to say is not necessarily the most happy thing to say. But if it's necessary, it's necessary. For the very salvation that he had first originally intended to write about was now under attack by apostates, hence the change of topics, a needed change. And that is where we want to look at our our second point. We see Jude's intention originally to write about the common salvation. Couldn't do it because of this huge, ginormous threat that he sees. And now we see, secondly or thirdly, Jude's instruction. So Jude's intention, now Jude's instruction. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write to you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you. Divine necessity and the present threat of false teachers took precedence over Jude's original writing intention. There was a more weighty, more pressing, more urgent, more prevalent danger facing the church. And instead of reminding his readers of the glories of the common salvation, Jude instead thought it more necessary to write to the church, calling them to battle to defend the common salvation. Because there would be no common salvation to write about if it was polluted and distorted by these apostates in this church. So what's more weighty? What's more prevalent? What's more necessity? teaching them, writing things that may not be there if this takes place. So instead of doing this, Jude says, I'm going to do this. And actually, biblically, instead of doing this, the Holy Spirit says, no, you're doing this. You're doing this. You're doing this. Paul knew what it was to have such a necessity laid upon him. 1 Corinthians 9.16, For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. 
And just like Paul felt the necessity to preach the gospel, Jude felt the necessity or the heavy burden or the mandate to write. Akko in the Greek, which is the root of the noun rendered necessity or needful, literally means to compress. Jude literally felt as if he was compressed, restrained, and burdened down by this need of the church that he had to write about. Jude realized that he couldn't just sit back in silence and watch this church slip into air, but rather he was to be a watchman for the truth and with this fervent passion for the truth, especially as it pertained to the gospel, it became, as it were, a heavy burden to Jude to write to them about something else than the common salvation. The very thought of false teaching weighed heavily on Jude. And the very thought of sound doctrine being diluted and the gospel being distorted compelled Jude to write this church a bleak warning. And again, Paul shared this common concern for the church. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. Besides those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches." All the churches that Paul ministered to were a heavy burden and concern to Paul. And this church to whom Jude is writing to is a deep, heavy burden to Paul. It's a pastoral concern. Because again, it is the heart of every good shepherd to protect the flock of God from the wolves. And this is why we see this urgent necessity laid upon Jude. He's an evangelist, but he's coming from the heart of a pastor. I must defend this church. Pastors must defend their church. So if your pastor ever makes you mad or ever infuriates you, or if you ever feel like saying, why doesn't the pastor just let me live? He must protect. So if he annoys you, it's because he loves you. If I annoy you, it's because I love you. And I would hate to see you slip into air. Slip into air. And this is the place where Jude is coming from. As I said, if he didn't write there may not be a common salvation to write about. So let's protect it before we write about it. You also get a sense of the genuine love that Jude had for his readers and the deep concern he had for their spiritual well-being. And again, this was also a very similar concern of Paul as he wrote to the Philippian elders. In Acts 20.31, Therefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years, I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Do you ever think of your pastor as a sleepless, crying person? He is. 
Because the weight of his congregation, the weight of their spiritual being, the, the weight of their spiritual well-being, and especially, especially if a church goes wayward and if a church member goes wayward, one which he loved, one which he discipled, one which he invested in goes wayward, do you think of your pastor as a crying, sleepless, feeble man? He is. You want to make your pastor weak? You want to make your pastor cry? You want to make your pastor not be able to sleep, go off somewhere. That'll do it. That'll do it. Tears. Tears. Heartbrokenness. That someone I love, forget me. Yeah, he hurt me. He stabbed me in the back. Forget me. His spiritual well-being is at stake. That's the heart of the pastor. That's the heart of Jude. This is the place where he's writing from. This is the heart of Paul. So we see this divine necessity that overtook Jude to write this church regarding the present threat of false teachers that became a burden on him. So we see this. We see that it became a burden to him, this necessity this instruction, but just what was Jude instructing this church to do? That's where we want to see Jude's plead. Jude's plea. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you. And exhort you. With this present threat of false teachers, Jude could not resist but to write the church exhorting them or appealing to them or urging to them to defend the faith. Defend the faith. This word exhort is parakaleo in the Greek, which has the meaning of exhorting or encouraging. Paul uses this, doesn't he, in, in Romans he uses this word in Romans 12.1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. The same word that Jude used, Paul uses here. It's an urging, it's an exhorting, it's a pushing, it's a calling, it's an appealing. But just why is he doing this? Why is he doing this? Uh, by the use of this word, we see that Jude is making a pastoral plea to this church, being concerned for their spiritual well-being, but what does this plea consist of? So Jude's instruction, what is he instructing? Uh, Jude's plea, what's the purpose behind this plea? Jude's very purpose for writing to this church was to exhort, appeal, and plead with them to as verse 3 says, earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. This expression, earnestly contend, translates a present infinitive, epigizonai, which stresses the need to defend the truth continually and vigorously. And if I pronounce any of these words wrong, trust me, he'll let me know afterwards. He'll, he'll let me know. He'll let me know. I think I was close enough. Because I think I've heard you say that word before. Um, to give you some examples of 
uh, some definitions of this expression to contend with or to struggle with, you could say that Jude is appealing this church to fight for the truth. Fight for the truth. Uh, This expression, earnestly contend, is synonymous with other words that have the definition such as to fight, to struggle against, to strive, to contend in games, and to fight in war. These are definitions synonymous with what Jude is calling us to do. Jude is calling the church to go out into an all-out war against falsehood. Epigizonai is a common, uh, is a compound ber- verb from where the English agonize is transliterated. Maybe you could say that what Jude is calling the church to do is to agonize over the truth, the purity of the gospel of salvation. And from Jude's day until now, the church has always and will always need to fight for the truth of God and the gospel of God. It's always under attack, and we are called to fight. One of the the most dangerous things that churches face is not false teaching, is not, well, it is false teaching, is not persecution, is not um, being harmed, is not even being killed. It's comfort. Comfort. We just lay back. Whatever happens, happens. We're pretty comfy. We're pretty comfy. Not you all, but the church as a whole is pretty comfy. It's a danger. It is a danger. We are called to fight. Life is not a vacation. It's a vocation. We are called to work. We are called to work. We as the church have been entrusted with the gospel. We've been entrusted with the gospel. And it is that gospel truth that is always under attack by a wicked, lost, and dying world. And it calls for us as Christians to rise up, get to work, put your hand to the plow, and fight against these attacks. We as the church as I've said, have been trusted with the gospel and the purity of the gospel and meaning that God is the author of the gospel. It's his gospel and and it's not for men, for us to pollute, to daint, to change anything. He's the author of it. It belongs to him and any dilution of it, any pollution of it invites eternal wrath because it's his doesn't belong to us, but we've been entrusted with it as stewards. What a tremendous privilege, but what a great responsibility. And we need to fight. Fight. And that's what Jude is calling this church to do. Many Christians don't want to take a stand for the truth in fear of being labeled a bigot, which you will, being canceled, How's about that for being up on the modern stuff? Being canceled, which you will, and possibly even one losing one's livelihood. You could lose your job. In other countries, you could lose your life. And so Christians are fearful 
to stand for the truth out of fear of these things. They don't want to offend people. They don't want to, they don't want to rock the boat. And while it is true that Christians are to be a peaceful people, I'm not advertising for you to grab guns and swords and go start a riot somewhere. I'm not advertising that. Christians are to be a peaceful people. We see this in, in Romans 12:18. If it be possible, as much as lieth in you, live peaceably with all men. But note what Paul says. If it be possible, then live peaceably with all men. Because there are times when peace is not possible. When the truth is under attack, it is not a time for peace, but it's a time to be called to fight and have a truth war. Martin Luther said, peace if possible, truth at all costs. There are times in the Christian life where there's no time for peace. There's just time for fighting. Peace leaves. Peace goes out the window when truth is attacked. You attack the gospel. You attack the truth. You don't have peace. You have war with the true church. Again, Charles Wesley perfectly pegged this idea of fighting for the truth when he penned these words. Soldiers of Christ, arise and put your armor on, strong in the strength which God supplies through his eternal Son, strong in the Lord of hosts and in his mighty power, who is the strength of Jesus' trust is more than conquerors. Stand then in his great might with all his strength endued and to take to arm for the fight, the panoply of God, that having all things done and all your conflicts past, ye may overcome through Christ alone and stand entire at last. Leave no unguarded place, no weakness of the soul. Take every virtue, every grace, and fortify the whole. From strength to strength, go on. Wrestle and fight and pray. Tread all the powers of darkness down and win the well-fought day. Take up your sword, take up your shield, and fight. Because as the truth is being attacked in Jude, the truth is being attacked now. Fight. Fight. Christians are soldiers who lift high the banner of the cross, as we sang this morning, defends its honor, and who knows nothing of surrender when it comes to the integrity of the truth. We must not be concerned to be labeled divisive. Why? Because in a way we are. Because truth divides. Truth from error. We are dividers. We are dividers. Um, it will divide what is wrong from what is right, what is biblical, what is unbiblical what is moral, and what is outright immoral. Don't be labeled to be divisive. We are. Wear it with pride. Wear it with pride. Now, with that, because that's a pretty strong command, we must keep in mind the admonition of Paul in Ephesians 4.15 to speak the truth in love. I'm not calling us to be a bunch of 
rebels and rousers and fighters. No, no. We are to fight for the truth, but we are to speak the truth in love. But we are to speak the truth. We are to speak the truth. For the most genuine thing that one can do is to speak the truth where there are lies. You want to show that you really don't love someone? Let them wallow in lies. You don't love that person if you let them live in lies and fall in lies. The only way you love someone is by piercing them with the truth. It might hurt, might make them angry, but it's the most loving thing to do. You have to do it. Speak the truth in love, but speak the truth. Speak the truth. Jude is a model of genuine love, is he not? For to writing to this church to tell them to contend for the faith, he is a model of genuine love. Proverbs 23, 23, buy the truth and sell it not. And also wisdom and instruction and understanding. Truth is paramount. Truth is number one. And we must have a first and foremost love for truth. And it is that love for truth that will bolster the Christian and cause them to fight. 1 Timothy 1.18 This I charge this charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before on, on thee, that thou that by them thou mightest war a good warfare. 1 Timothy 6.12 Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life, whereunto thou art also called, and hath prophesied a good profession before many witnesses. Titus 1.9 Holding fast the faith, uh, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that ye may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. Romans six seventeen through 18 Now I beseech you, uh, brethren, mark them which cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine which ye have learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly by, wor by good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. And then lastly, Galatians 1 8. 1 8. But though we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel unto you than which we have preached unto you, let them be accursed. Anathema. Let them be damned. Truth is paramount. And it is that truth that we are called in Scripture to fight. Fight the good fight of faith. Fight it. And we're out of time. We're out of time. But, um, yeah, we didn't make it through. But we'll get there and just cut it off, okay? We are called as Christians to fight the good fight of faith, and we need to remember that. And I would urge you, as well as I would urge myself, don't live so much in comfort. Don't be satisfied with sitting on the sidelines. Get in the game. Get busy. The truth is out there, and the truth is real, but the truth is being attacked. Get busy. James, get busy. We all need a fight. We are soldiers, soldiers of the King, soldiers of the cross. We've been entrusted with the gospel. What an honor, but it's weighty because the moment you tamper with it, 
the moment you pollute it, you invite wrath. We are entrusted with a great treasure. Let's protect it. And when the wolves come, fight them off. Fight them off. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we praise you for this day. We praise you for your word. We praise you for the truths of your word. And I pray that we as Christians would not be ones that live a life of comfort, live a life of ease, but that live a life of striving, contending and fighting where it is needed. And it is needed in our day. So I pray that we would, by your grace and through your mercy and for your glory, stand and fight for the truth of the gospel wherever it is maligned. So that its purity and so that its integrity would be sustained. And it is to that end and it's to your glory that we pray. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to Divine Truth Podcast. We pray that the exposition of the Word of God was a spiritual blessing to you. Again, for more information about Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit www.ebcmineral.com. You can also find us on Facebook at EBC Mineral. Our Lord's Day services are 10 a.m. and 11 a.m. Sunday morning and 6.30 Sunday evening. We also have a Wednesday evening service at 6.30. We here at Emmanuel Baptist Church pray that God's divine truth would be proclaimed always from the cross, through the church, and to the world until Christ come. And now from all of us here at Emmanuel Baptist Church and Divine Truth, thank you so much for listening and please stay tuned for further episodes. God bless you.